This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hempel. This season, we're bringing you stories from changemakers and innovators all around the world working to create a better future. So if you're on the hunt for some solutions to the world's biggest problems, then you've come to the right place. Protecting our most important resources is becoming a global problem that affects all of us. The impact of climate change and the demands of urban living are threatening so many of our essential sources of life. Take water, for example. We need it for everything, but only 3% of the world's water is fresh water, and two-thirds of that is frozen, polluted, or just not accessible. So by 2025, we're looking at some pretty serious water shortages all around the world. Where are the world-changing ideas? Hi, my name is Jamila Bargash. I am an anthropologist. I work as the executive director of Foundation Darsi Ahmed in southwest Morocco, where I have worked for the last 12 years. Bargash and her team are doing something pretty incredible to provide thousands of local inhabitants, their families and their livestock with fresh drinking water. My world-changing idea is that we consider fog as a worthy resource for getting our water in a world where water is more and more scarce and where in in certain regions of the planet there is water scarcity that is high we can store it and make it therefore a resource that is long term and that it creates a certain autonomy in the place where there is this type of fog to be harvested so how do you harvest and store fog there is a lot of traditions. We're not the, by far the first ones. On the contrary, we have benefited from, you know, a millennia tradition of people harvesting fog in the planet, uh, be it in the Kalahari Desert or be it in uh, the Arabic Peninsula or be it in, you know, in different places on the planet. Folks have harvested fog. So in the older tradition, let's say in the region of the Canary Islands, the Guanchos, the original inhabitants of these islands, used the foliage of trees to collect the fog. So fog condenses on any surface and then it drops into small drops of water. And that drop of water, once it's amassed, becomes a lot of water. In the 1970s and then the 80s, an amazing organization called FogQuest, headed at the time by Dr. Schemenauer, started doing some of the experiments and building the project. It built something called the Fog Collectors, and it is just a simple mesh that's folded twice, and then it's expanded on two wooden pillars almost like a volleyball court, and then the fog is pushed by the wind. And then it goes through this mesh, and then it gets caught in the mesh, and then little by little, with the gravity, 
it descends into a gutter and then through the gutter into some sort of a container. And so the principle is that simple. So you're basically setting up these huge mesh nets that look a bit like sails planted in rows along the sides and the top of a mountain. The ones being used in Morocco are called cloudfishers, and they're a bit more hardy than the fog catchers to cope with the extreme weather conditions. So we're very high up, and so we have the cloudfishers placed there, and these cloudfishers were redesigned by a German engineer, Mr. Peter Troutwein, where we built these 1,700 square meters of nets. And we have 31 units, so each unit has a number of meters. And then all of them are connected to a large reservoir that we have built on top of the mountain. And then from this reservoir, we have a main pipe that goes down the mountains, some 1,000 meters down, And then we go to another reservoir where we mix the fog water with underground water. And then we have secondary tertiary pipes that deliver the water to individual households within the villages that drink this water. In recent years, the region has been threatened by drought and the spread of the desert. The volcanic rocky landscape makes it difficult for plants to grow But this is now the largest functioning fog collection project in the world. And it's a very special type of fog that the local residents get to witness. It has a specific name for the folks who work on fog and who are lovers of fog. And believe me, there are those who are lovers of fog. So it is called the Sea of Fog or Fog Seas. And it is a fog that comes a little bit like in the... um, region of San Francisco, in that region of California, if you are on a high point, let's say in an elevation on a mountain, and you see it coming from a sea uh, like we have in Morocco, we have the Atlantic Ocean, you see the fog coming, it really behaves and acts like a sea. It is waves of fog that fold in and then expand and fold in and expand all the visual references, uh, a landscape or, you know, a mountain or a tree, everything becomes blurry in the beginning and then disappears entirely because the fog is so thick. Now, climatologists usually define fog as simply a, a cloud that touches the earth, but this type of fog that's called in Spanish also uh, niebla del mare or mare de nieblas or here they call it uh, tagut. It means that it is a fog that is extremely thick and has a very high condensation of water within it and it is in some ways quite breathtaking to witness such a fog event. For Jamila Bargash, it changed her life forever. My first witnessing of a fog event on top of the mountain has been a transformative moment for me. I really, really felt an extremely strong connection to the event of fog and seeing fog coming and then realizing that we were, as a human being, as one species among many, also living off the planet and that there was a sort of sacredness to the moment of seeing this fog that was uh, absolutely, there was a before moment and an after moment. And since that time in 2009, 
I have always been working on on fog and in our organization we have all our programs actually built and connected somehow to fog The Dasiamad Foundation works with local residents to develop traditional farming practices fight the impacts of climate change and provide jobs and education So whoever is in the home benefits from having access to an interrupted clean resource of water but it is mostly the women who benefit most because they were the water guardians in the sense that they used to go get water and some other villages not far away from the ones that we service still do the same thing you know we have to go out to the well and get water and bring it home and so the women have gained something like 3.5 hours a day back into their day time that used to be kept for the water chore but the challenges for the local people living in this region are getting more extreme each year So there is this sort of almost pristine nature, but it is a nature and an environment that is suffering enormously from repeated droughts, uh, increased water scarcity and, and mass migration because the communities have very little to live on. There is a very low income uh, for the communities living below the threshold of, of poverty. There is very limited uh, access to education entire number of uh, uh, communes still don't have access to running water though they have all access to electricity and telephone from an anthropology point of view it is mostly inhabited by the amazigh communities the indigenous groups of the region with their own language the tradition the traditional practices in terms of agriculture and beliefs and uh, and so on And with the threat of youth migration to the cities constantly looming, there's a worry that many of the region's traditional farming and water capture practices will be lost. Fortunately, the fog harvesting efforts have received international attention, winning several prizes and grants. We've had the support, the financial support of the German uh, partner who have really invested in the design and remaking of the fog collectors and coming up with a new design more efficient and much stronger and solid which is the cloud fishers and we've had the support in the earlier period of the project from a variety of folks and a variety of organizations what is it that makes the region so ideal for fog harvesting so the region of morocco where we work is southwest the southwest region so it's a a beautiful region with amazing landscapes and it has almost three or four different types of climate so we have the beach and we have the atlantic ocean so it's a coastal area then you have the end of the atlas mountains called the anti atlas mountains and then you have the door to the sahara and then you have a mix for instance in the wind you have the cold winds you have the hot winds called the shergi winds The new sturdier cloudfisher design was particularly well suited to the region's harsh climate and the next step is going to be expanding the project to provide fog water for 12 more villages in the region because we have extreme weather conditions with extremely high winds and gushes of wind and high temperature so when we started we had five pilot villages so it was about 300 people and now we're up to 16 villages and we have about 1000 people who drink uh, fog water 
And at the same time, of course, these are uh, herding communities. So we also consider their sources of livelihood, which is the goats and the uh, the sheep and uh, the cows. They also drink water. We always joke about how everybody is drinking almost like Perrier water in the region because the water is so special, so precious. But as climate and ocean currents shift, is there a risk that the seasonal fog could stop turning up or just dry up like the rains? As the cold currents within the oceans are changing and becoming warmer, that they may affect the weather. Of course, it is a risk and it's there. But at this time, the scientists who work on this are not sure about what model we might end up with. And what about air pollution? Will urban development elsewhere in Morocco affect the quality of the fog's drinking water? We do lab tests cyclically on the water because it's our responsibility. We follow what happens in the region. So we're high up and so far the air pollution is really very minimum and under control. I think that any projects anywhere in the world, big, small, medium, whatever, whatever setup, it has logistical funding challenges. And we've gone all through that, especially for us, the logistics, because we are on top of the mountain. The road is extremely dangerous. It's just a dirt road. So it, it takes a lot of real investment and belief in the project to be able to finalize it. And I think for me, the biggest challenge is the limiting beliefs that we've faced through the years. First of all, from the community, because the traditional beliefs design or think of fog as a nuisance. And so the community members couldn't really fathom or understand the idea. And it was like, not only do you work on the project, but also you work on the idea that this is something possible. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Preserving and protecting our resources requires active conservation, but right now the stats are looking pretty bleak. The Amazon rainforest is losing about 10,000 acres every day. And in less than 50 years, we've destroyed over half of the planet's tropical rainforest. Clearly, we need some kind of new approach to conservation, and we need it fast. I sat down with Tadzio McGregor, a co-founder of the Javari Project in Brazil. This Amazon rainforest territory is home to countless biodiversity and some of the world's last uncontacted tribes, and it's dangerously under threat. So what does the Javari Project actually do? The Javari Project continues the work that Celine Cousteau, my co-founder, started many, many years ago. It all started when she was nine years old and her grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, took on the endeavors of going to this land in the moment of a transition when the Matisse indigenous community had actually just been contacted in the 80s. After that, Celine was contacted once again by Beto Marubo, one of the leaders of the Javari indigenous community. And they were asking Celine basically to tell the story of what was happening in this region, to tell the story of malaria, of hepatitis, of tuberculosis, that no one was actually listening to. 
we decided to create the Javari Project, which is officially a nonprofit. We created it two years ago. We're based in the Netherlands and we see ourselves as allies. We see ourselves as allies to the cause in the Javari. We are not trying to be ourselves an indigenous organization. We are trying to simply listen to the community and to its needs. We actually position ourselves within three different pillars. One around indigenous health, the second one around biodiversity and the understanding of the richness of this region. And the third one, which is pillar three, and we call the alternative livelihoods, is working around everything that is bioeconomy, cultural valorization of the indigenous community and so on. Tell me about this region in the Amazon. What is it that makes it so exceptional in terms of its resources and in terms of its people there? This is the Wild West of the Amazon. This is a place where we're talking about 8 million hectares of pristine standing rainforest. There's very little places in the world where you can still find this. And we're talking about two different assets to the world. Not only the environmental richness, but also the value of the cultural indigenous communities. We're talking about one of the last untouched areas of rainforest, but also the second largest indigenous territory in Brazil. And this, in the Javari Valley, is also the place with the highest amount of uncontacted indigenous peoples in the world. So as we know, the Amazon itself has an enormous influence in the hydrological cycle of the planet, even more than we initially thought. Losing regions like this will push the terrestrial system to completely different global climates, no? And the Shivari is under all kinds of different threats, isn't it? And when it comes to world-changing ideas, how do you feel areas like the Javari can be successfully protected? Do we need a different model of conservation? We do. We need to actually change the narrative around conservation. I'd say we need to change it now. We need to understand that conservation as we've known it has often been very short-term visioned. Donor and, and funding comes with a lot of strings attached to organizations that have to work in areas that have to adapt to change. And I think the world has come to a closer understanding that conservation, restoration, and regeneration with nature is much more than just charity. Understanding that we're all deeply interconnected to whatever happens in regions like the Javari. There's a need to also understand that there's a lack of contact. So I think we should radically change the way we also communicate. The storytelling is a huge factor. NGOs today still communicate the way they did in the 70s and the 80s. We need to understand that numbers, facts are important, but we need to be able to put these in emotions as well. Because emotions are the only things that are actually going to motivate policymakers, that are going to motivate funders to understand, to empathize, and to feel closer to these projects. Because there's always this question of whose job is it to conserve these regions? Who's going to be able to protect these places? Is this a job for governments or organizations like yours? What would you say regular people can do to help? One of the most important things is we are built as a coalition. We are in our legal structure a nonprofit, but we are built as a coalition in the sense of saying, it's not about Celine or myself. We are allies and we need to bring in different allies to support this region. We cannot work in 8 million hectares by ourselves. With seven indigenous peoples, it's a lot. So we need to bring in, yes, different organizations, 
different funders. We needed to work with local government, national and regional levels. And we need to be able to understand that this is something that the general audience needs to care about. This is something that affects you no matter where you are. And the challenges to protect the rainforest and the Javari Valley specifically are really extreme, aren't they? It's a hotspot for illegal logging, for poachers, for cocaine smugglers along that Amazon border with Brazil and Peru. What's the situation like at the moment and how are you trying to manage these challenges? Gold miners spread mercury in all the rivers. Poachers try to make what they can and sell to the local and, and actually to the Chinese market as well. And loggers cut everything down selectively so farmers can then provide for their cattle. And all of this, whilst drug traffickers use this land as a route between a very complicated region, which is called the tri-border, Colombia, Peru, and Brazil. So you can only imagine the challenges that come with this. Um, this is why I also believe there's very little organizations working in this region because everything is far away one of the most remote areas of the world. And the challenges are somewhat always evident you know, when it comes to project implementation. You have to travel long distances, sometimes days, to get to one of the villages where we work. We have to travel three days sometimes by boat. So logistics and communications are very complicated. And this is why it's also very hard for people to grasp the challenges of working in this region. And the notion of places in the world where things move at a complete other rhythm I say it's a good reminder of also what we've lost. We've lost the having to work with unpredictable situations. We've lost that in the Western society. And working in this region is, is sometimes very hard for other people to understand that. Mm. And there's been this suggestion recently of maybe giving human rights to areas of great natural importance and having this stricter level of protection and acknowledgement, perhaps. Do you think that's something that could ever work in the Javari region? I think it's a very complicated notion, and it's been applied in, in many countries already, including Bolivia, Ecuador. It's been applied in certain states, I believe, in the United States. I think the premise is amazing. Uh, it's giving rights to nature, understanding that ecosystems and natural communities have the right to exist and flourish. So this concept... I think challenges are ever-existent laws that are generally grounded in a flawed frame of nature being a resource to be owned, used, and degraded. It can help us give guidance about how to live with the world rather than live at odds with it. And I like that a lot. Is this possible in the Javari? It sure is, but it's also very challenging. Uh, it's, I think it's a long way. What have been the biggest lessons that you've learned from working on this project? Has it changed the way that you think about climate change and our human relationship with nature? Without any doubt, working in the Javari has been a proof of the continuity of where I grew up in Mexico. Understanding the narrative that exists around conservation, but also around indigenous peoples. Deconstructing ourselves as Western society, but also understanding how we got here. And I think that is one of the most important things. This is about Latin American's history. It has been built from over 500 years in which the notion of indigenous peoples is these are lazy people, they're resistant to change, they're stubborn. And I grew up seeing this on a day-to-day -day basis in Mexico. I grew up with this. And now working in Brazil, working in this region, 
makes me understand that this is much more than just Mexico. This is something that, that is being repeated all around Latin America and probably around the world. Well, we're not only talking about Latin America. Indigenous peoples are considered not fit to enter the modern system. Why? Because we're asking for them to be productive. And in their own notions, productivity is not something that is deeply rooted in the way that they envision their world. So I think understanding that, you know, that we come from this world in which all of us need to be productive from the moment we go to school and we're asked to be competitive and we asked to be you know, always doing more to then enter the labor market. They are not. So we need to be able to understand that we're fighting against 500 years of history. And as Beto Marubo has told Celine and Celine has told me, these problems did not happen in one day. They will not go away in one day. And we need to be able to understand that rhythm. And that is why resilience and persistence and patience are probably the biggest lessons that we've learned by working in this region. How do you get a global population to invest in the idea that the rainforest and preserving it and conserving it is everyone's responsibility? I think we need to create stories. We need to create stories around that for people to, to be able to understand this, for people to understand that whatever happens in the Amazon is deeply connected to their lives in Paris and London and New York. If we do not do this through stories, I do not see other ways. I do not see other ways of people engaging, of the young generation understanding the importance of places like these. I think we need to cut with the idea of things that are abstract and far away. So we need to be able to show this, but we also need to let these communities tell their own stories. Very often these stories get told and they never get seen by local communities. So we need to be able to make sure that these stories are shared both ways, but that they are also told by both versions, you know, by two sides of society. I think that is very important. Okay, that's all for our show today. I'm Amelia Hempel, and we want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. What other cool ways to collect water have you come across? Let us know on Instagram or TikTok. While you're at it, leave us some comments, leave us some stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. See you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, mixing and sound designed by Nicholas Torres, Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer, editorial oversight from deputy editor Kate Davis, and senior VP of entertainment Scott Mebus. 